Good morning. That's pretty good. How about this? Uh, you know, I'm uh, excited. I'm heading home to Texas for the week, and I'm uh, very grateful to be doing that. Uh, but just to maybe make it feel a little bit more, more like Texas, I'm going to say howdy, and you guys can remind me of what it's going to be like. Oh, kids need to go? Thanks. Kids, go ahead. Head back that way, and uh, we'll see you guys soon in a little bit. So, so while they're doing that, why don't you do this? I'm going to say howdy, and you say howdy back. Howdy. howdy. <sighs> I'm not that far from Texas. I know it. Just a short three-hour plane ride, all right? Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, always a good thing to do. Uh, there are pew Bibles that should be in the pew in front of you. And so uh, if you didn't bring your own, feel free and please grab one of those pew Bibles. And we'll be on page 976. Hebrews chapter 12 is where I'd encourage you to flip. And uh, if you just happen to not have access to either of those, the text should be on your screen. And so while everyone's flipping to Hebrews chapter 12, uh, before we pray and get into it, just want to give you guys a, uh, uh, a preview of where we're going to be sermon-wise for the next several weeks. Um, after Thanksgiving next week, we'll do a kind of a standalone sermon, and uh, it will be on the power of a praying church. And so we're going to talk a little bit about prayer and some ideas that we have uh, as elders and as deacons and as uh, other leaders of the church, how we can make prayer uh, really more part of uh, what we do here at Grace. And so that's going to be next Sunday. And then we'll have a three, a short three-part Christmas series called Home for the Holidays. And we'll be talking about uh, various three, actually three uh, sets of biblical characters that were not home uh, for the holidays during the first Christmas. So we'll be having a short Christmas series. And then uh, starting in January and going up through Easter, we're going to be doing a series called Follow Me. Follow Me. And it's going to be uh, covering, uh, Lord willing, the entire book of the Gospel of Mark. And so if you've been anxious to be in the Gospels or to talk about Jesus, that's what we're going to be doing. And so just by way of preview, uh, I know several of you like to read ahead. And so I um, encourage you to read in the book of Luke for Christmas and then read uh, the book of Mark for the uh, upcoming uh, foreseeable future. So uh, if you have in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to be, and uh, let's pray, and let's get rolling. Father, thanks for a good morning. Uh, thank you so much uh, just for a wonderful week as we anticipate uh, holidays, as we anticipate families, as we anticipate food. I pray, Father, that we would anticipate um, a wonderful time of being thankful to you. Um, and it, It's a bit cliche, and we can be uh, so easily distracted from that, but Father, I pray for my own heart and for the hearts of my brothers and sisters here, that as we anticipate uh, just the holiday ahead, that we would truly have grateful hearts, uh, that we would be grateful for all things, and that we would be uh, so uh, filled with joy and with gratitude for what you've done. Uh, first and foremost, we're so grateful, Father, that you have spoken to us. We're so grateful that you have not left us in the dark, but you have created us, and you have spoken spoken uh, through various times and various means and through various ages, but in this time period, you have spoken uh, to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. You have sent him into the world to become one of us, to be the God-man, to be Emmanuel, God with us, and clearly we see who you are, Father, through the person and the work and the life of your Son. And so, Jesus, thank you that you have spoken uh, to us through your life. Thank you, Jesus, that you uh, lived a life that we could never live, live, lived a life of perfect obedience that we could never live before the Father, and that you not only did that, but you died in our place for our sins. You took the wrath and the punishment that we so deserve, and you bore it on the cross, and you resurrected from the dead, and you uh, overcame death and Satan and sin itself. And we anticipate the day, Jesus Christ, when you will come again, you will redeem your saints, you will judge all evil, and you will set up your kingdom. And so, Jesus, would you come quickly? We ask that we would long for your coming, and that we would love your appearing. We ask it in your great name. Amen. 
So this morning we're in part four of our series called Siren, Warnings from the Book of Hebrews. And so what we've been doing basically for the past four months is we've looked at various warning passages from the Book of Hebrews. There are several, and we've looked at four. Actually, we've looked at three, and we're going to look at the fourth this morning. And so our fourth warning uh, is entitled, Don't Refuse Him. Don't Refuse Him, but instead, Revere Him. And so part four of our series called Siren. Warnings from the book of Hebrews. Uh, I ran across an article uh, as I was preparing for my sermon that I found interesting. In his book called Unsinkable, uh, the author's name is Daniel Butler. He documented uh, all of the events and he did a really uh, a rich and deep study on all of the events surrounding the sinking of the Titanic. Now, uh, probably all of us are familiar to some degree with the story of the, the Titanic, especially if you saw the three-hour movie saga that you know was out 10 years ago, which of course my wife refuses to see because she says it ends sad. <laughs> I know how it ends and I don't like it. That's okay, honey. They, they, the boat sinks. <laughs> uh, but in this book, Unsinkable, uh, the author uh, gives a lot of interesting details about the events surrounding the sinking of the ship. And I'll just share uh, some of those details with you uh, that are most pertinent to us in our study of the book of Hebrews. Uh, first of all, he found out and, and did some study and found out that, that, that the Titanic essentially received no less than six, six warning messages from other ships. And so, interestingly enough, six ships during their time period, as they got closer and closer to this um, dangerous spot of ice and icebergs, six ships sent messages saying, hey, watch out for ice. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the author goes on to say that if you would have plotted these six coordinates, if you will, these six messages, there's ice here, there's ice there, you put all of these coordinates together, and lo and behold, what you would plot out, and if they would have done it, they would have discovered that there was a belt of ice, catch this, 78 miles wide, a belt of ice, 78 miles wide, that this mammoth ship was heading directly towards. Now, what is even more interesting is what those on board and those in charge of, of the ship did with these warnings. Because what we're going to find out is that they were not heeded at all. In fact, what we found out through research in this book is that only one of those warnings, only one of those coordinates was plotted. So they didn't plot all six. They only plotted one of them. And here's the kicker. Only one or two of those warnings even reached the captain. And what we find out, of course, is that the captain did absolutely nothing to heed those warnings. Well, over the past four weeks, what we have seen is we've received some warning messages as well. We've not received six of them. We've received three or four of them, but they are warnings nonetheless. We have received, if you will, some warning messages about danger ahead, about spiritual icebergs that are lurking in the waters of the Christian faith, if you will. And we've been warned that our, our, our spiritual ship, our ship of faith, might sink. There's danger ahead. We need to be leery and, and, and aware of the spiritual icebergs that pop up in the life of faith. What we've discovered is that these early Christians were facing hard times. They were facing increasing persecution for their faith, and that inevitably involved uh, financial suffering, the plundering of some of their property, uh, inevitably lo loss of job, loss of business. Times were getting extremely tough for these early Christians. There were icebergs in the water, if you will, and they were in danger of falling away from the faith. They said, forget this. If this is what being a Christian involves, I don't want anything to do with it. And this was the danger that they faced. And I'll suggest to you, that's the danger that not only d that they face, it's a danger that we all face 
as believers in Christ. And so, like a good pastor, like a good biblical writer does, the author of Hebrews has given us a series of warning messages. The three that we've looked at, he said, don't turn away. Number one, the first warning was, don't turn away from the faith. Number two, he says, don't stay a baby. Don't stay a baby Christian. Use the difficult circumstances of life to grow and mature your faith. And then thirdly, last week, he said, don't grow weary. Remember the image. He says, the Christian life is like a marathon, and don't grow weary of it. Just keep running. This morning, he kind of wraps up his book by giving us the final warning in the book of Hebrews, and it's found in chapter 12, starting in verse 25, and he says, don't refuse him. Don't refuse the voice of Jesus Christ when he is speaking to you, but instead, revere him. Don't refuse him, but revere him. So let's begin with the very first, the actual warning, and it starts in verse 25, and it runs through verse 29, and it's don't refuse him. Let's read this together as a whole, and then we'll make some points, starting in verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, this is what we should do. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful especially this week. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is indeed God's very word. The first warning uh, is simply this. It's, not, it's a warning to not refuse the voice of Jesus Christ. It's a warning not to refuse God's speaking to all humanity of all times through sending his son and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The image is simply this, that God has spoken to us. He's spoken to everyone, and he's spoken in the life of Jesus Christ. And it's like the life of Christ is the voice of the Father calling out. And what these believers were in danger of doing, and what some of us can be in danger of doing, is refuse to hear God's voice. It's to refuse to hear the word of Jesus Christ. The word refuse essentially means to hear it, but to not heed it. Because we all know there's a difference between hearing something and heeding something. And so I'm probably in danger of this. We're having a conversation, and my wife says, we need to do X, Y, and Z. And in some sense, I hear her, but it's not enough, right? If I just hear what she wants me to do and sit on the couch and watch college football all day, I'm hearing her voice, but I'm not heeding <laughs> her voice. And there are consequences, are there not? Um, and so what he says is, don't refuse the voice of God speaking through Jesus Christ. Don't walk away from the faith. God has spoken to all of humanity in the person of Christ and what you and what some of us may be in danger of doing is hearing God's voice, hearing the voice of Christ and doing nothing. Sitting back on our couch 
and watching football or whatever it is that may be and not hearing and not heeding it. And so we see the beginning warning in verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. And then in verses 25, the tail end of 25 through 27, he gives the consequences. He says, so what are the consequences of not heeding his voice, of hearing it but doing nothing about it? Let's read it together. Again, the tail end of verse 25. Interestingly enough, if you read the preceding section, what you'll find out is he's drawing a contrast. He's been talking about how Israel, if you remember your history, Israel was on Mount Sinai and Moses went up the mountain and God tangibly, audibly spoke to the people and he gave the law. He gave the the old covenant, if you will. And he's saying if those people heard God's word and did not obey it, And if you read through your Bible, you find out that God's people in the Old Testament often did not obey it. There were consequences. He says, how much more if we hear God speaking from heaven in the person of Christ, a much louder voice, and we don't do anything about it? He says this, if they, speaking of Israel, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that is from Mount Sinai, how much less, how much less we If we turn away from him who warns not from earth, but from heaven in the person of Christ. And so he says there are consequences. If we hear God saying, this is my son, believe him, trust in him, give your life to him, believe in him, be born again by what he says, follow him, give your life for him, don't give up in following him. And if God is speaking, and yet we choose to deny that, if we choose to hear it but do nothing about it, He says there are even greater consequences than what Israel experienced so long ago. He goes on to describe what those consequences might look like in verse 26. He says, At that time, his voice shook the earth. That is when God spoke at Mount Sinai, it shook. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, quote, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicates the removing of what can be shaken, that is the created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. The point is this. He's saying, if we refuse Christ, if we believe in Christ, if we profess Christ and then turn away, reject him, believe he's not the son of God, and turn away, we will not escape eternal consequences. What he says is there will be a day when God will remove the heavens and the earth as we know it. He's looking far into the future, although maybe not that far. (laughs) We don't know. He's looking into the future, and he's saying there will be a day. There will be a judgment day when this earth as we know it and the heavens as we know it will be shaken up, will be done away with. I will create a new heaven. I'll create a new earth. My kingdom will reign forever and ever, and I will judge those who deny Jesus Christ and who do not place their faith in him. That is the consequence of refusing his voice. And so in light of that, in light of his coming kingdom, how do we worship God? What should we do? What should be our response? He tells us in verse 28, read it with me again, therefore, so this is what we should do, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, number one. Let us be thankful, number two, and so worship God acceptably. And so worship God acceptably, how, church? With what? With reverence, right? He says, don't refuse him, rather revere him. With reverence and with awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
And so he says, what is then our response? If we believe in Jesus Christ, if we profess faith in him, if we have been born again, how should we live? What should we do? We've heard his voice, right? We've believed in Jesus Christ as the son of God. What should we do? He says, as a response of listening to his voice and not refusing his voice, live a life of worship. That's essentially what he's saying. Live a life of responding in reverence and in awe and in worship. So how do we do that? What is that practically, tangibly, every day, go to work, go to school, go to play? How does that, what does that look like? Well, he's going to tell us all through chapter 13, and we're going to look at that in a minute. But before we do that, I have a couple questions. Because this, this little section, this final warning to not refuse his voice, we must not just move on without thinking about what it means for us. And so number one, Maybe you're a professing believer this morning. You are a Christian. You profess faith in Christ, but you are having a difficult time. You find yourself very much, much so in the shoes of those who have gone before you. Times are hard. Things are difficult. There's pressure. There's stress. And the bridge of your Christian faith seems to be crumbling. Finances might be tight. Your health might be wavering. The bills might be stacking up. Relationships that you value might be breaking. Kids are rebelling. Your marriage might be failing. There might be all sorts of difficult circumstances that you might find yourself in this morning. As these early Christians did, you profess faith in Christ and you're wavering. You're doubting. You're wanting to know if this faith is real. You're wanting to know if the person of Jesus Christ is really who you thought he was. And you're doubting because things are hard. If that's where you find yourself this morning, the author of the book of Hebrews, and ultimately God says this to you, don't refuse my voice. Don't refuse to listen. Hear very clearly that I've spoken to all humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Keep believing in him. Keep following him. Don't give up. Don't give in. Secondly, maybe you're here this morning and you have heard the voice of God speaking to you in the person and work and life of Jesus Christ. You've sat in the pews and you've heard from my lips and from the scripture that Jesus Christ is God's only son, that he's perfect and sinless. You've heard from the scriptures and from my lips that we as human beings have fallen short, that we uh, cannot meet a holy God's standards and therefore we are born into sin. We sin against God and we are separated from him. You've heard the voice of God speaking to you saying that there is good news and that good news is that Jesus Christ has come to make it all right, to make us reestablished with the Father. We can be holy and righteous. We can have our sins forgiven. We can be born again, made new creatures and that we can begin walking in faith and following Jesus Christ and you've sat in the pews for weeks after weeks after weeks and you've heard the voice of God speaking to you in the person of Christ and you're like a husband who hears his wife speaking and you go back and you sit on the couch and you watch another football game. You are not listening. You are refusing the voice of him who speaks to you. And if that's you this morning, as it was me when I was growing up, I didn't believe in Jesus Christ until I was 15. And I very much like you sat in the pews week after week because my mom made me (laughs) and my dad made me, and I heard God speaking to me. I heard his voice in the person of Jesus Christ, and I did not heed it. I did not listen. Week after week after week. And so if that's you this morning, the author of Hebrews and God says, don't refuse him. 
Don't refuse his voice. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Personally believe in the truths that we have said and you will be transformed. You will be born again. You will be made new. And so the author begins with the warning. Don't refuse him. Secondly, he says, don't revere him. Moving on then into chapter 13. Remember at the tail end of 12, he says, if this is the case and if you're a believer, live your life in reverent worship. Well, how do we do that? What we have is a whole chapter worth of what it looks like to live reverently before God in worship. And so he says, don't refuse him, but secondly, do revere him, verses 1 through 6. So let's read this together, and what we're going to find out, uh, and we're just going to limit ourselves to verses 1 through 6. If you really want to keep reading, keep reading. There's other things that you need to do to live a reverent life of worship as a believer. We're just going to focus on a few things. In fact, we're going to focus on five things. What the author is going to tell us is five things. Four things that we should love and one thing that we shouldn't, okay? Four things we should love, one thing we shouldn't love, and that is what it looks like, according to the scriptures, to live a reverent life of worship. So let's read this together, verses one through six. He says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. How cool would that be, by the way? (laughs) Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And so, five things this morning. What does it look like practically for us to respond to God's voice in Jesus Christ? Well, number one, four things to love, one thing not to love. Number one, love believers that we know. Jot these down if you're taking notes. Number one, love believers that we know. Again, verse 1, he says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters, a simple command. Uh, The word here used for love, translated in the Greek, is really the word that talks about affections. It's a word that talks about feelings. It's a word that talks about fondness, not necessarily love in action, although it doesn't preclude that. But what he's saying is as brothers and sisters, we should have genuine affections for one another. We should desire one another. And so he says, like, in the natural sense, if you have brothers and sisters— I think the natural thing is that you love them, you want to be with them, you enjoy them, you are fond of them, you care for them. That's a natural thing in a healthy family is for siblings to love one another. Now, if you have young kids and they're beating each other's brains out, well, just wait, okay? It'll get there. (laughs) It'll get there, right? Um, But he says, typically, brothers and sisters love one another and it's a natural thing and the same should be true on the spiritual level. We share, as Christians, a spiritual father, And so we need to act like spiritual brothers and sisters. And so, how about you? Can you honestly say that you love the people who come and sit here every week and that you rub shoulders with? Do you have affection for them? Do you really care about them? Do you long to see them? Do you miss it when you're not here? Do you love them like a brother and sister? Or do you merely just put up with them? 
Number one, the way we revere him, genuine worship is, number one, we love believers that we know. But not only that, number two, we love believers that we don't know. Notice what he says in verse two, loving believers that we don't know. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, uh, for by doing, some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. This is kind of a toughie. Is he talking about strangers that are Christians, strangers that are non-Christians, for various reasons. I think he's talking about people who are Christians that we just don't know very well. Jot this down if you want to do some checking, but Romans 12, chapter 13, excuse me, Romans 12, verse 13, and 1 Peter 4, verse 9. Those two passages really indicate that there, uh, this word stranger was used to talk about other Christians because here's the deal. In that culture, if you were doing some traveling, it's not like they had wonderful uh, Holiday Inn uh, hotels or Wyatts that were just safe and comfortable that you could just stop in. And so if you were a believer and you were traveling from town to town on business or on a mission, mission trip or whatever, you relied on other Christians to show hospitality to you, to take you into their home as a brother and sister Christ, even though they were strangers. You didn't know them, you hadn't met them, but they professed faith. They professed to be a believer, and so this is, I believe, is what he's talking about. And so for you and I then, as we think to apply this, I think what it means is we need to meet the needs of Christians, we need to love other believers that we don't know, or we don't know very well. But uh, Case in point, when I had graduated from college, I was uh, 22, and I was going to start seminary at Dallas, and uh, I had gotten a youth pastor job at a church. Actually, it was an internship at a church in Dallas. And uh, so I was connected with the church, and long story short, they're like, hey, before you start school, before you move into the dorm room at at seminary, we're going to hook you up with a family to take care of you and to stay with. And I was very grateful. And so I remember remember the day driving uh, through Dallas, and it was a bit intimidating because I was kind of a country boy driving into downtown Dallas, finding my exit, finding my way to the home of Kathy and Woody Glenn. And Kathy and Woody Glenn, uh, to this day, are very good friends of ours. We appreciate and love them so very much. And I remember pulling up, and there's Woody doing the yard. And he came up, he introduced himself to me. He said, I know you're a believer. I know you're coming to, uh, to, to help our church. This is your house. And he threw me the keys of the car. He said, go get what you want. Eat our food. Stay out as late as you want. You know, just be quiet <laughs> if you do. And, and, and they were so welcoming to a believer that they had never, ever, ever once met before in their life. And that is the kind of thing that he's talking about. So how about you? Are you inclined to love other Christians that you don't know or maybe that you don't know well? I think it's pertinent to say that this involves not only meeting people outside of our community, but there are Christians, even within our community, who go to other churches that are genuine believers. And I think this means that we need to love them well too. We need to care for them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so number one, we love believers we know. Number two, we love believers we don't know. Number three, we love believers who are suffering. Let's read verse three together. We love Christians who are suffering. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. Now here's the deal. Christians were under persecution. They were being, being put in jail for their faith. And so think of it this way. You have a good friend, a brother or sister in your church. They get put in jail for their faith and you're faced with a choice. Are you going to visit them or not? And if you do visit them, they may throw you in jail too. 
because you're identifying with this person who's in jail for their faith. Oh, and by the way, in those days in jails, oftentimes the prisoners were not nearly well-treated as they are in our culture and in our day, and so often the prisoners relied on outside help for food and for basic needs like clothing. And so here's your brother in jail. What are you going to do? Are you going to love the Christian who's suffering? By extension, we should love believers who are suffering. And so I want to ask you a few questions. Do you know a brother or sister in Christ who are in need, who are suffering in some way? Maybe they're suffering financially. It's hard to pay their mortgage. Maybe their car payment is late. Maybe they have uh, some repairs on their car that need done and they can't do it in that time. Maybe they're going through a really difficult time with their family or emotionally. The question we have to ask ourselves is, will we tangibly, with our money, with our time, with our effort, with our emotions, will we love Christians who are suffering as if we want them to treat us if we were in their shoes? That's what the author is saying. So how are you doing? We love believers we know, we don't know. We love believers who are suffering. And then fourth, to live a life of reverent worship as a Christian means loving marriage. Loving marriage. Notice what he says in verse four. The marriage bed should be honored, or marriage, some translations say the marriage bed. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. So the fourth way that we live lives of reverent worship is with our sexuality, is with honoring the marriage institution. He, notice he says that we honor marriage, and how do we do that? He says marriage should be honored, and here's how. The marriage bed be kept pure. That's a reference to sexual purity. And so he's saying if we want to live lives of worship, not only do we love other Christians, those we know, those we don't know, those are suffering, but if we want to live a life of of reverence that is, is acceptable to God, then every relationship we're in, whether we're married or not, should be marked by sexual purity. That's how we offer worship to God. That's how we live reverently before him. Obviously, adultery refers to sex uh, uh, in the marriage of, uh, of cheating and in and, and, uh, and, and a marriage context. But the other word, this word sexual immorality, essentially is a blanket statement. It refers to any kind of sexual conduct outside of marriage. That's what that, ref- that word refer- refers to. And so what he's saying essentially is, What we do with our sexuality matters, and it should be a mark of the church. The church should be distinguished from the culture by how we handle ourselves and our sexuality. I want to show you a quick picture that's up there. It's a picture of a little animal kind of called an ermine. I don't know if you've ever seen an ermine before. I have not, but I ran across this story from an old daily bread, and I want to share it with you. I found it interesting. Anybody want a new pet, right? Go find yourself one of those. The article says this, in the forests of northern Europe and Asia lives a little animal called an ermine, which is why we don't have him here, known for its snow-white fur in winter. He instinctively protects his white coat against anything that would soil it. And hunters, unfortunately, take advantage of this unusual trait. They don't set a snare to catch him like uh, they would a, a normal animal, but instead, here's how they catch this animal. They find its home where it lives, usually under a cleft of a rock, and they smear on the entrance and the interior of the home 
muck, grime, dirt, and all sorts of things that will soil this animal's fur coat. And then they set their dogs out, and they chase the ermine. And when the ermine uh, is being chased, well, where does it inevitably go? To its home. And so it goes home, and the frightened animal gets towards it home, it gets home, but it stops. It refuses to enter its house because of why? There's dirt and grime and filth. And so the article says, rather than soil its white coat, he's trapped by the dogs and is captured while preserving his purity. For the, for the ermine, purity is more precious than life. And I wonder what it would look like if the church had this kind of concept, had this kind of lifestyle when it came to honoring the marriage bed. And so number one, if you're married, there are obvious implications. Adultery, sexual adultery, is to be avoided. Emotional adultery is to be avoided, which is when you get emotionally attached to somebody else. And here's the deal, folks. Because we live in an internet age uh, where you can chat with people and there are chat rooms and Facebook, this is even more an issue. It really is. This is even more an issue. Not just sexual adultery, but emotional adultery. And if you're single, what, what this means is that if you're dating someone or if you're not, but especially those who are in a consistent relationship with somebody you're dating or somebody you're engaged to, what this means is that you're, you will worship God with how you handle yourselves sexually. Now, Shelly and I have been in this position before, and, and of course, it's very hard to keep sexually pure while you're engaged. But what the scripture says is, you want to live a life of worship, honoring God, and do it his way, then that's what it looks like. And here's the challenge from experience. It's not just keeping yourself sexually pure in the sense of, well, we didn't have sex. It means, what does purity look like? It means it's a direction. It's not a line. It's not, we can do this, but we can't do that. And here's the line. There is no line. The direction is holiness and obedience. And then when you get uh, married, you get to have a lot of fun. (laughs) But here's the deal. Before then, it's a direction. It's not a line. And so let me ask you as a single person, Will you honor your future marriage bed by doing this? So he says, love believers. Love believers you don't know. Love believers who are suffering. Love marriage. And then finally, something we're not to love. We're not to love money. Let's read verses five and six again. Keep your lives free from the love of money. So what does that look like? And be content with what you have. Okay? Why? Because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we can say with confidence, because we know that. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere men do to me? And so in closing, he says, love these things, but don't love money. Keep your life free from the love of money. Well, how do you know? I was asking myself this. How do you know, how do I know if I'm not loving money? And of course, he doesn't mean, oh, I love the smell of money and just the feel of it in my pocket. No, money represents what we can do or what we can get with money, right? And so it's not just about the little green, you know, bills in our, in our billfold. No, it's, it's what money offers, what, what it offers. How do we know Well, one way we can know is if we're content. That's what the scripture says. Are we content with what we have? And so let me ask you, are you content with what you have? Because one way to know if you love money or not is you're never content with what you have and you're often complaining about what you don't have. And if that's the case, then it's a good chance that you love money. And I have to be careful because there are things that I want that I don't have that money can get me if I had more. <laughs> and so I have to be careful to not love money. And I think, oh, I don't love money. Well, do you want this really bad? Yeah. 
Are you willing to sacrifice for it? Well, maybe. Well, maybe then you love money. Notice what he says. He says, be content, and there's a reason. Why should we be content? Why can we live a life satisfied with where we are? Because God has said, never will I leave you nor forsake you. This word leave in Greek describes if you were to leave somebody, you, were, you would forsake them in a state of defeat. That is, when they're down and out, when they're helpless, you would leave them, right? And so basically what he's saying is that we can be content because God will not do that. If we're down and out, if we're helpless, and we need God to meet our needs, he's not gonna up and go. He's not gonna look down and say, boy, you're helpless, adios, right? That's not what he does. He's not a fair-weather fan or a bandwagon fan. Maybe you've heard that terminology before, but a fair-weather fan is a fan who roots for a team when they're what? When they're good and when they're bad, they find another team, <laughs> right? And uh, my beloved Aggie football team stands at six and five. <sighs> and we started the season, season ranked number seven in the nation. <sighs> but I'm not going to be a fair-weather fan. I'm not going to leave them when they're in a state of defeat. And here's the deal. God does not leave us when we are in a state of financial defeat, is what he's saying. And because of that, we can be content. And so, five things. What does it look like to revere him? We love believers. We love believers we don't know. We love believers when they're suffering. We love marriage, and we don't love money. So as we're wrapping up this series, I hope it's been beneficial for you. What I encourage you to do is go back, spend some time in the book of Hebrews. There's so much there, so much we couldn't cover. We just focused on the warnings. But what we've seen in this series called Siren, warnings from the book of Hebrews, is several warnings, several messages, if you will, from other ships that are telling us there are spiritual icebergs in the water. There's danger in the ship of the Christian life. In my challenge for me and for all of us as we close is to not be like the captain and the people on the Titanic ship who hear the messages, they hear the warnings, they should heed it, but they do nothing about it. And because of that, their faith was shipwrecked. Their faith was shipwrecked in a sense. They hit an iceberg and they went down. That's a very real danger for every Christian, for those then and for us today. And so let's heed these warnings. Let's heed these warnings. Let's don't turn away. Let's don't stay a baby. Let's don't grow weary. Let's don't refuse him. And when we do so, what we'll find out is that we, like these early Christians, can heed the overarching warning of the book. The point of the book is don't give up, but grow up. Don't give up, but grow up through adversity. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this wonderful book of Hebrews. There's so much there. There's so much that I would like for us to touch on. Uh, And yet you've given us clear warnings. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are in icy waters and there are icebergs all around. Father, they're struggling in all sorts of ways that only you know about in full. I pray, Father, that you would help them to heed the warnings so that they might navigate the waters, the icy and cold waters, that they might go around the icebergs that are so prevalent in our world and are dangerous to our faith, and that they would navigate around those and that you would be their captain. You would be a a good captain and, and navigate their ship for them so that they don't give up, but rather they grow up in the midst of hardship. I pray that over all of us. And I pray, dear Father, for those who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They are not in the race 
place of faith. They're sitting on the sidelines. They have heard your voice, but they are denying the voice calling out to them to believe personally in Jesus Christ and be born again. I pray that they would do that right now, today, in this moment, that they would cry out to you, believe in Jesus Christ, be forgiven, and be transformed. Thank you for those of us who have experienced that, and we ask that you would help us in the ship of faith as we navigate hard waters. We pray for your help. We ask now that you would bless our food as we eat it, as we go, as we have a wonderful week of Thanksgiving. May we be overjoyed with all of the good things that you've given us in grateful hearts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's do this. I'm going to ask you guys to